So this morning, we're going to be taking a look at marriage. We're going to be taking a look at marriage. And I'm going to pray before we jump in, and I'll kind of give you guys a little bit of a breakdown. So if you have not been with us for any length of time, um, we've been going through the book, of Re- or the book of Ephesians, not Revelation, the book of Ephesians. And uh, as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, we've basically just been taking it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, looking at it, letting God inform us and speak to us as to what he has to say. And so we happen to be kind of at that place or that space in the book of Ephesians that addresses marriage. So um, I'll, I'll tell you some reasons why I think it's really important for all of us to consider uh, the subject matter of marriage, whether or not you're married, whether or not you are planning on getting married, whether or not you are planning on never getting married, or you're divorced, or you're single, uh, or you currently are married. So we'll explain that in just a second. What I want to do before we jump in, I want to pray, ask God's help, and then we will begin to sort of uh, get into this. I spent a lot of time over the past week, several weeks, actually several months, really studying and investigating the subject matter, really wanting to do the best that I can to present for you guys as much information that I can. And one of the things I came into discovery of is that there's a lot of information to be said. And the type of time that we have here in this, on Sunday morning is really not enough to go into everything that I feel needs to be said about it. So, um, so you're welcome. Uh, that, this is not going to be a three-hour sermon. Um, and then what we'll probably be doing is at least two weeks, maybe even a third, depending upon how we uh, kind of tackle the subject as of next week. We'll basically keep it at two weeks, maybe three weeks. Um, but hopefully it will be informative and helpful for all of us as we consider this really important, what we call an institution, uh, that God has actually designed, that God created to bring about flourishing, something that God is actually uh, very interested in. So let me pray, and then uh, we'll begin to take a look at really this weighty subject. Sound good? God, we ask for your help, and we need it. God, as we look at this subject matter, we realize that every single one of us in this room um, have been, to some degree, impacted by marriage. Uh, Some of us in a good way, uh, most of us probably in a very negative way, whether we are married or whether we are uh, products of divorce. And marriage has been this thing that uh, we're afraid of. And yet, God, we, we pray that you would inform our minds, God, that you would reorient our understanding as to what marriage is, and that we would be able to enter into at least an understanding of it, God, that would lead to flourishing so that rather than going about our lives with a constant thought in our mind that it's something to be avoided or something to be feared or something to be dreaded, God, that we can see it as something that you designed for good, for flourishing, for blessing, and that, God, we would enter into it, at least enter into the idea that it's a good thing. So we just commit this time in your hands. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do is I'm going to jump in um, and just first of all kind of tackle the subject or the question of why even uh, kind of approach the subject of marriage. So out of curiosity, how many of you here are not married? Raise your hand. Just not married. Raise your hand. Really, really high. Okay. Uh, How many of you are married? Raise your hand. That's about half and half, I'd say, maybe 50%. So when the students get back, it pretty much bumps our uh, statistics up to around 75 to 80%. So For the most part, when you think about a church that has a lot of people or the predominant uh, number of people within this church are those that are not married, it kind of begs the question, why even address the subject matter of marriage? Well, there are basically three things I want to give. I just kind of wrote these things down so you guys can check them out. One is, first of all, obviously it's in the Bible. And I think we have oftentimes temptations to read the Bible and sort of pick and choose subject matter that really is interesting interesting to us or is of great interest to us. So, you know, it's easy for us to 
pick and choose verses in the Bible that address, you know, God's love or God's faithfulness or God's care and kindness and salvation and so on and so forth, so forth to us. But we omit certain passages that are a little bit troubling or that we don't really want to mingle with or deal with or touch because it might stir up emotions or things that we just want to avoid. So the fact of the matter is it's in the Bible. It's one of the benefits, you know, we oftentimes say of just teaching through books of the Bible is that when you teach through books of the Bible, you're basically forced to tackle every single passage, every single subject and topic that arises there within the text. It's one of the reasons why we're really big advocates on a a genre or style of teaching that's called expositional preaching, which means we just take books of the Bible and we just go through them. We just let God speak to us, let God inform us as we look at every single verse and as we try to, as best as we can, to align our lives up with God's word. So, first of all, it's in the Bible. Secondly, um, most that are single, most people that are singles, uh, are mastered by either an excessive desire to get married or an excessive fear of marriage. So let me, let me unpack that for a second. So most singles are mastered by an excessive desire to get married, meaning uh, if you're not married, you're constantly thinking about and wishing that you would get married. You're constantly observing or noticing friends that you have that are married and you are lusting after their marriage meaning you want desperately to get married. This is the 35-year-old girl that's kind of constantly wondering, am I ever going to get married? Is somebody ever going to choose me? And you may be looking at your life and being overwhelmed with the sense of loss or fear or dread that maybe you will never get married. But then this oftentimes leads to sort of the opposite of that, which is an excessive fear of marriage. Sometimes the you know, uh, male and female alike that have this notion of marriage, which is something to be dreaded or to be removed from or to run, be run away from as fast as you can because you've observed what it has done in the lives of other people that you care about. No, you've seen them go through this sort of meat grinder called marriage, and they come out the other end not really good. And so there's a tendency for you to kind of have sort of an inordinate fear of marriage. Now, this leads to actually two specific or diverse types of responses, one of which it either leads to deep anxieties over uh, one may never getting married. So again, back to the person that is not married but has this really, really high uh, sort of obsession over getting married. Uh, There may be sort of this constant ongoing anxiety that you have that maybe you're going to miss the boat. Maybe you will never get married. Maybe no one will ever select you or pick you to be the one. And so you have these deep anxieties that are sort of kind of controlling your life. And so there's never a sense for you to ever really be at rest. So anytime one of your good friends comes to you and you're like, guess what, I'm married. You're like freaking out and angry and upset because it was not you. In other words, you cannot actually enter into joy and happiness for them because you're not the one. Does that make sense? Just following on so far? Have you made anybody mad yet? Okay. The opposite of this is sort of deep anxieties over uh, lifelong commitment. All right, so this is, this is the person that says, I don't want to get married. And you may be in a relationship for a very long time, a prolonged period of time, but you never pop the question, why? You're afraid. As simple as that, you are afraid. You are allowing these anxieties, and some of them may be rightly situated fears, meaning you have gone through something bad or traumatic in the past that has sort of defined your life, but there's a fear of commitment. So therefore, what will often happen is relationships will take place, and sometimes this is sort of the guy, for example, that might say, I really, really love you, but I don't 
I don't get married yet. Really what you're saying is I love you a lot, but I don't love you enough to commit myself in all that I am to you for always, wherever. Because there's fear somewhere, an inordinate amount of fear tucked away in there that basically prohibits or keeps one from actually entering into that. So again, why talk about marriage? Because we got to. Third one is divorced people oftentimes have or form these distorted views of what marriage is. So I kind of wrote this, something of which God had intended for beauty, good and flourishing, oftentimes becomes dreaded based upon past hurt, or a little bit of what you might look at and view as PTSD. You are afraid that any time the thought of commitment arises to the level of exclusive commitment, meaning I'm not going to turn my eyes towards anybody else, there's a little bit of PTSD that arises that says, oh my gosh, this person is going to be mine or potentially be mine for the rest of my life. And what about all of the other possibilities and options? And so, therefore, fear keeps that person from really entering in. And we see the same thing oftentimes with divorced people is that there are all sorts of distorted views of marriage that prohibit someone from really truly entering into something that God says is really good, is blessed, is intended to bring about flourishing. So that makes sense so far, guys? So in other words, when we're talking about marriage, marriage, in fact, I would go so far as to say that marriage is such an important institution that to not address it would be to not address the obvious elephant in the room that all of us are constantly obsessing over or some of us are absolutely fearful of and trying to avoid. So we've got to address it. So again, for me, I'll give you my personal example, my story. I was brought up in a family that actually got divorced. And so I remember as a young adult... Um, not ever wanting to get married. I just kind of the commitment I made to myself that I don't ever want to get involved in a marriage in which, you know, I might have a spouse betray me. I saw my dad go through that. I didn't want to be where my dad was at. I saw the trauma, the pain, the anguish, the hurt, uh, the brokenness that it brought upon his life. And so I said to myself, I just, I just don't want any part of that. And so I avoided marriage for as long as I could until I met my wife. And so point of the matter is, is that we have to really have a, a, an understanding about marriage, I think, that is biblical. And really, when we look at this passage here, this is actually the longest passage uh, in the Bible with regard to marriage. So what I want to do now is I want to transition. I want to read uh, the passage. Before I actually read the passage, I want to sort of set this within the cultural context. So to do that, I want to read a couple other passages that are not biblical, these are extra-biblical passages, and they're not even close to being biblical. Um, but these are actually passages that come from antiquity, from history. Um, one is from a guy by the name of Josephus. He's actually Jewish. Uh, he was a historian. He was not Christian. He didn't necessarily hold to any types of ideals of Christianity. But Josephus had some words to say about marriage, and I'll read those. The second of which is a guy by the name of Philo. He was uh, a writer who talked to uh, Jews and wrote about Jewish uh, information and history. And the third guy that we'll talk about is a guy named Emilius Apollos. And uh, this is, uh, he's, he's uh, a Roman guy that basically there's a little bit of a story about his life. And then I'll read what Paul has to say actually about marriage. So you guys ready for that? Let's first of all jump in up on the screen. I'll have uh, the passage from Josephus. Here's what Josephus says. Now, mind you, before I read this, I want you to think about this. I want you to put the passage of what Paul has to say in the context of what I'm about to read. So I want you to at least pay attention to, listen to how these guys would have characterized 
marriage in the first century, give or take 150 or so years. So on either end before Christ or 150 years or so after Christ. So this is sort of right within the time frame of when Jesus lived, Paul lived, the first century would have been happening. Now again, this is not necessarily characteristic of every single view in the first century in the region on marriage, but these were sort of predominant views of marriage. So here's what Josephus has to say. A woman is inferior to her husband in all things. Let her therefore be obedient to him, not so that he should abuse her, but that she may acknowledge her duty to her husband. For God has given the authority to the husband. Next, from Philo. Wives must be in servitude to their husbands, a servitude not imposed by violence, but promoting obedience in all things. Philo. Third, Emilius Paulus, and this is written uh, in a history book by a professor by the name of Florence DuPont. She wrote in a book called Daily Life in Ancient Rome. Here's what she had to say. Emilius Paulus had married Papiria. Papiria was a perfect wife and gave her husband two sons, both of whom proved exceptional men. Socially, Papiria was everything that was expected of her. She was beautiful, virtuous, and fertile. Fertile apparently was a very important thing for a century, as long as a wife had a lot of babies. That was very significant. Emilius Paulus, however, decided to divorce her. Why, he was asked. Is she not discreet? Is she not beautiful? Is she not fruitful? Emilius Paulus then held out his shoe, saying, is this not handsome? Is this not new? But not one of you can see where it pinches my foot. So he (laughs) married another woman. I guess you call it irreconcilable differences. Here's what Paul has to say about marriage in the first century. Listen to what Paul has to say. And I just want you to notice stark contrast between what Paul has to say and what the prevailing ideas, both within Judaism, both within the uh, Roman world, uh, were basically advocating. Here's what Paul has to say. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that he might be holy and without, or th- so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and what I'm saying is that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, I wanted you to see the contrast between what Paul had to say about marriage, as well as, or in light of, the prevailing ideas and ideologies and concepts of marriage within the first century. I think it's important because, again, if you were to understand what Paul had to say about marriage in light of or in connection to or comparison to the other types of understandings of marriage, what you would very clearly come out and understanding is that Paul speaks about love a lot. 
And the love that he does speak about actually is pinned upon the man, that the man is to love his spouse. When things obviously very absent from all the other descriptions from other women or from men within those other descriptions is that a man really has the authority and power to do whatever he wants. Really divorced or divided or, or separated from the concept of love. And again, another thing, kind of an observation, I'll kind of point a couple of these things out real quick. So here's some initial scriptural observations. Next slide. That just kind of come to my mind. That one, obviously, I kind of alluded to. They said this is the longest description of marriage in the Bible. Um, Paul is actually alluding to Genesis chapter 2, where God also talks about marriage there. But this is sort of the longest exposition throughout the entire Bible as to what marriage really is. In other words, it has the largest in, uh, body of information as to what marriage is. So we derive a lot of our understanding as to what marriage is about from this particular passage. Secondly, I would note that the weight of responsibility is clearly set up upon the husband or the man. Why is there to submit to husbands? Husbands are to submit to Christ's example. So, for example, he'll say to the women, women, submit to the husband. But then he will say, husbands, submit yourselves to Christ's example. But he doesn't just sort of leave it there in terms of an arbitrary fashion. In other words, Paul is not just saying men... Do the best you can to submit yourself to Christ's example, and then you just kind of move on to the next subject matter. Paul actually unpacks for us what Christ, what Christ exemplified, who he was, what he did. And that's where he begins to unpack all this beauty as to what Jesus did for his bride, which is also called uh, the church. So that Paul is pointing out that Jesus actually loved the church. And again, love was not just simply a sentiment that Paul is saying somehow men hook yourself up with some sentiment for your wife. Paul is saying, look, love is an action. Love is exemplified by what you do, how you act, how you treat the woman. So in other words, the, the weight that Paul places here in this passage is really upon the men. It's kind of one of those important things that, or distinctions that I think to make because there's a tendency when reading this passage that there's a tendency to kind of view the emphasis or focus upon the, you know, wives, submit yourselves to your husband, and that becomes sort of the only verse in that entire passage that gets focused on. And sometimes that has been done, sadly enough, because some men throughout history, probably within the past 50 to 75 years of special history, have basically focused upon that and have sort of misused the scripture to wrongly emphasize that a woman's role is to really submit herself to her husband. And really, at the same time, he removes himself from his responsibility of submitting himself to the actions of Christ. So in other words, he, men, have been abusive with regard to this passage. I think it's an important thing to note that there have been a lot of men, a lot of men within the church that have basically taken this passage and have basically misused it and abused it and have in essence, brought women into a place of oppression. And so I think it's really important to note that because this is not at all what Paul wants for us to do or for us to be able to see. So with that being said, the second thing that I noticed is that the weight of responsibility is clearly set upon the men and the husbands. Third thing is that servanthood is the basis of a flourishing marriage. Self-centeredness is its undoing. I get this from chapter 5, verse 21, which uh, I don't think I read, but the point of the matter is, is Paul, we looked at this last week, where he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So everything that Paul is about to unpack now basically stems from verse 21. So in other words, when Paul talks to husbands and wives, he's linking that to verse 21. Paul is going to now 
After that, we talk about the relationship of children to fathers. And he's going to link that whole relationship within the home of the family to this whole idea, this notion of submission. Then Paul is also going to talk about the relationship between a master to servant or employed employer, however you want to view that, or that idea, that ideology there, is linked to this concept of submission. So in other words, what we looked at last week is this concept of submission really has to do with servanthood. Being willing to submit yourselves as servants to one another. And what the one another that Paul is really referring to and talking about are the various types of institutions set in the culture. One of which is marriage, another which is family, another which is sort of vocational lifestyle. How you live, basically making a living. Paul is saying that there, is, there, are, there are elements of order that need to be put into position here, put into place. But what Paul is then going to say is that servanthood really is the basis of uh, a flourishing marriage. So in other words, for a man and a woman are to really uh, be servants to one another. Now, if you've been married for any length of time, you know that when you have two people in a marriage that are willfully putting aside their desires um, in exchange for the desires of their beloved then what you have is a marriage that actually is positioned or poised for flourishing. All right, you, might, you don't even need to be married to know this. You can have had a relationship before, uh, boyfriend-girlfriend, and then in that relationship, you discover that one of the parties in that relationship is totally selfish or totally self-centered. That relationship is poised for breakdown. It's poised for brokenness. It's poised for woundedness. It's poised for someone to get hurt. So the reality is what Paul is saying here is that any way that a relationship is going to flourish, it first of all, first and foremost, basically needs to be positioned to have two people within that relationship that are willing to be servants towards one another. And that's what Paul is going to begin to unpack. They, servanthood, that servanthood really is the basis of flourishing within the marriage. Self-centeredness ultimately is going to be its undoing. So let's take a look at a couple cultural observations. All right, cultural observations. There's an interesting statistic here. In 1960, um, and a lot of this actually comes from Tim Keller's book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage. Why don't you just skip forward real quick to the slide that has that picture, and we'll come back to that. So um, this is Tim Keller's book, Meaning of Marriage. If you're looking for a good book to read or an audio book to download, I'd highly recommend this book. In fact, I read through it. I've listened to a lot of Keller's sermons on this, that a lot of stuff I say in some way, shape, or form may actually be sort of somewhat quasi-regurgitations of what Tim Keller had to say. So if you, so here's some of the stuff I'm saying. Thing, oh, that sounds a little bit like Tim Keller. That's why, because uh, I've tried to read this book a lot and memorize it and learn it so that it just becomes sort of second nature because it's really, really good. All right, back to the original slide um, where we have the statistics. So in 1960, 72% of all Americans were married. That's almost three-quarters of the entire nation were all married. In 2008, 50% of all Americans we're actually married. So that's a drop of around 25%. So half of all Americans get married. That's kind of an interesting cultural statistic because what it tells us is that there's an uneasiness with regard to marriage. Uh, it doesn't mean that people are having any less sex. It doesn't mean that people are having any less connections. It just means that the institution of actually getting married, lifelong covenant, lifelong commitment is actually waned due to all sorts of specific reasons. Um, take a look at the next slide. A um, couple things to kind of point out um comedian chris rock says this some of you guys may have heard this before he says do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored i think actually that rightly characterizes the suspicion that a lot of people in america have today with regard to marriage in other words these are sort of the options that are sort of on the table with regard to the subject or the idea of 
the institution of marriage. So in other words, let me put it this way. If you are single, whether it be because you never married or maybe because you are divorced and you're considering the reality of getting married again, these typically are the options that most people tend to look at. And oftentimes it actually reflects the pessimism, cynicism, and skepticism of really that Chris Rock quote. And one is that you have the option of being single and lonely, or you have the option of being married and bored, meaning you're going to just be married. If you're going to be married, you're going to live the rest of your life in total meltdown and boredom. Or thirdly, which oftentimes has led to kind of an increase in cohabitation with a sexual partner. And oftentimes what typically takes place in these types of relationships is love, or love the idea of love, meaning sexual relationship, um, becomes sort of predominant, and this sort of takes the place of actual true friendship. It becomes sort of more of a sex partner that you have, someone that you can just hook up with uh, as often as you like or when they're willing, and yet that sort of oftentimes omits the reality of having a true, lifelong companionship, friendship, relationship where two people commit themselves to each other forever and ever. So these are basically what we see oftentimes happening, taking place within our world. So what I want to do this morning is I want to basically take a look at the first two verses that we really began to jump into. Verse 22 and verse 23. Because, um, like I said, I got a lot of information. Um, I got to control myself because otherwise I will go on for a really long time. I'm going to kind of limit myself to just taking a look at these first two verses. So what I want to take a look at specifically are two, I think, really important passages or words in particular that I think help kind of chart a course for where we're going to be going at least today, but also for next week. So first of all, verse 22 says this, wives, I'll read it to you again, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, the reality is what we don't necessarily see in most of our translations is that actual word submit does not actually appear in verse 22. Um, Most commentaries, most concordances, most study guides will point this out, that they will show you that that word submit actually does not appear there. So for example, it should read like this, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. So the question kind of naturally arises, why is the word submit there? And the reason is, is because like I said, verse 21 sort of sets the precedent, sets the course as to what Paul is then going to begin to unpack. So the word submit basically is drawn in or deposited from verse 21. So what I want to do real fast is I want to look at two words, first of which has to do with the woman, and it's the word submit. It's what she is basically being called upon or asked by God, by Paul, to do. The second of which is the word headship. And this is what husbands are being declared as being. So let me pause real quick before I jump into this and just simply say this. If marriage, for example, was nothing more than sort of uh, an institution that kind of evolved over time and uh, is something that we can sort of pick or choose or select or edit as we choose and as we will, and over time things it's gonna it's gonna morph, it's gonna change. What you will have, what you should have, is sort of a trajectory where it's always changing. It's always morphing. So in other words, the institution that we find ourselves in today um, is not, is not uh, static, but rather it's dynamic, meaning it may change you know, in six months, it may change in six years, it may change in six years. So in other words, giving your heart, giving your life, investing yourself in something that will not be around for a very long time is sort of silly. But on the other hand, if marriage is something that God designed, something that God actually initiated, God started, God created, then it has great significance. And I would also add it has something or a lot of which God actually speaks into. Let me give an example of this. Genesis chapter 2, 
uh, begins to talk about a marriage. Uh, the book of Revelation, last chapters of the book of Revelation actually talk about a marriage. So if you want to think of it this way, the Bible is actually sort of bookended by marriages. It begins with a marriage. It ends with a marriage. So marriage is something that is very important, very significant to God. And as I already kind of alluded to earlier, that what Paul has been talking about throughout the entire book of Ephesians is that God has come into this world to rescue us. He's come into this world on a rescue mission. We as human beings have done something with our life that has basically detached ourselves from life. What that detachment process is, Paul will describe as sin. Meaning we, as remember we talked about earlier, that servanthood is the basis for a flourishing marriage. Self-centeredness is its undoing. In a very cosmic sense, in a very universal sense, all we as human beings have become self-centered. Meaning, we have put ourselves at the center of our lives, and rather than looking to God, turning to God, humbly submitting ourselves to God, being servants of this God who created us, who loves us, we have basically taken matters in our own hands, and we become self-centered. And by being self-centered, that has cut us off from the source or the supply of life itself, meaning we die. All humanity is on a path of death. We need to be rescued. We need to be reconnected to the source of life. And this is what Paul says in the book of Ephesians, that Jesus has come into this world to do, to reconnect us with life. How? By himself becoming a man and ultimately suffering on a cross for our sin, being crushed, being wounded, being broken for our sin in our place so that we who are wounded, crushed, broken separated from God, can actually be healed, put back together again, restored, and given life. This is the good news, that God has not forsaken you. We talked about divorce earlier. Divorce is painful. I know. I haven't been through it personally, but I've watched my dad break down as a result of it. Maybe some of you have been through it personally. You've been through that crushing. You've been through that meat grinder. Your life has been destroyed as a result of somebody else betraying you. It may have been because of your sin. It may be because of their sin against you or a combination of both. But the point of the matter is, is that even divorce is something that God knows about. In the book of Jeremiah, it says, God knows what it means to be a divorced partner within a marriage. That Israel, his beloved wife, turned her back on God. She was unfaithful to God. She ran out after other mistresses in the place of God. And as a result of that, God says, I know what it feels like to be absolutely abandoned. I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like to be crushed, to be broken, to be wounded. So God can speak into our lives as to why and how marriage can become a source of flourishing, a source of healing in our lives once again. So with that, I want to begin to take a look at a couple of these words Verse 22 says this, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. So first of all, I want to talk about real fast what submission does not mean. Because there's all sorts of myths as to what the word submission means. There's a tendency to kind of think that submission means that you've got to simply submit yourself to an oppressive husband. Now again, remember I already pointed this out, that when Paul talks to the husband and wives, uh, he basically puts a measure of weight upon the husband. It's the husband's responsibility. He's there to, be re- to submit to Christ, to Christ's actions. He's there to submit his heart, his life, everything that it is to the actions of Christ. So what submission does not mean, next slide, 
is that submission does not mean unconditional obedience. It does not mean unconditional obedience. It doesn't mean for the wife, for the woman, to just sort of act like this sort of wifey woman to do everything that the man tells her to do no matter what. To never question, to never call him on anything, to just simply quiet her mouth, to simply do everything that she's told to do by him. That is unbiblical. That's an amen right there, by the way. That's unbiblical. It's not calling for unconditional obedience at all. The point of the matter is, is that there are occasions where Paul actually uses that same word, submit yourselves to local government. Is Paul saying, using the same word, uh, submit, uh, submit yourself to the local uh, governments, is Paul saying, obey them in everything they tell you to do? That's not at all what Paul's saying, because there are occasions where Paul says, civil obedience is justified. Especially when the state says, you must not worship any other god. Paul says, you have every right to obey, to disobey them in that, because they're asking you to do something that God has demanded for you to not do. And so this is not talking about unconditional obedience. Secondly, it does not mean husbands unilaterally make every single and all decisions. This is, again, a myth or distortion of this understanding. That there are some occasions where men think that it means that they are to make every single decision. The woman is not capable or able to make decisions. So therefore, the man sort of usurps the authority and takes all the control and unilaterally makes every single decision. This is not simply wise. The fact of the matter is that women, like, for example, my wife, has got a lot of wisdom for me to not listen to my wife, for me to not consult with my wife, for me to not uh, welcome my wife's input would be simple foolishness. That God has called, and we'll look at this more so in the, weeks, in the week to come, at least, maybe weeks, but at least in the week, that really God has called the woman to be a helpmate, meaning that she has information and wisdom and abilities to see things that the man is not capable of seeing or understanding. So therefore, it's absolutely imperative for her to speak and to be part of decision-making processes. So in other words, it's not unilaterally for the husband to make all decisions. It's a collaborative. They work together. But what this does mean, if I can put it this way, what it does mean to submit, it means, I think, if I can put it this way, that at the end of the day, the final arbitrator of making decisions. In other words, when there's gridlock, when there is not mutual submission to each other, loving servanthood to each other, working together mutually to try to figure things out, I think it is saying that the husband is to make the final decision. Now again, there's a tendency to kind of buck against that and be like, what? Look, let me put it this way. I've been married for 23 years, and I can probably count on half a hand how many times Things have literally gotten to such a point where I'm like, I got to make the decision. This is, this is me. I don't like the input that you're giving me. I'm going to make a decision. In fact, one of those times I would even go so far as to say that it was, it was actually a bad decision. I should have actually listened to my wife. And I had to actually go back to her and say, I, I, I made a bad decision. I thought I was doing the right thing. It was not the right thing. And it got bad. But the point of the matter is, is that this is what Paul is saying, is that there is an order in the way God has designed all things to function, whether it be... Uh, the government, that the government is to be the leader and they lead and guide and their job is to promote justice and to uh, create a sense of protection for citizens. And yet there are going to be occasions where Paul says, you've got to submit to that. But there's going to be occasions where you don't have to submit to that because civil disobedience may be warranted and justified when and in certain circumstances, when uh, society or when the government actually abuses its authority and begins to 
bring about your own destruction. But in the case I think he's describing here is that submission basically means that within this relationship that a man is to, in essence, make final decisions when those circumstances are not come together in the right particular fashion and there's not consensus along the way. So the second thing I would point out as we'll look at and we'll wrap this up is the idea of headship. And again, this is in actual verse 23. Paul then says, for husbands, so first he addresses women, the wives, then he says, for husbands uh, is the head of the, uh, head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he gave himself its savior. So the idea of headship is also an important word that Paul basically impacts and calls the men into. The word head, ship, or head, basically implies two specific things. It involves completion, meaning body and head come together, make a unity. Head divorced from a body is decapitation. And you don't have the ability to actually function or flourish or move. So therefore, you need head and body functioning together. And what you have when head and body are functioning together is what the Bible describes as completion. You can actually go somewhere. You can actually accomplish something. You can actually create something. You actually uh, develop beauty or cultivate something good, something that's life-giving. But when there is division or brokenness between head and body, you don't have completion. So I think what Paul is talking about with regard to headship, that man is to be the completion, uh, is headship. He's to be part of the body, meaning he commits himself. And we'll look more at this next week at least. The idea of marriage involves a vow. It's a commitment to say, I will never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. It's a commitment to say, not just that I love you now, but it's a commitment that basically says, 20 years from now, I commit to still love you. 40 years from now, I commit to there be by your side. 60 years, when we're kind of old and decrepit and about to die, I will still be by your side. It's a commitment. It involves completion. Involves being united, being linked up, being connected, being completed. That's what headship means. Second thing that Paul says for the husbands is the idea of headship, I think, that's involved is the concept of authority. We already touched on this real briefly, but the idea of authority, the actual uh, English word that we have for authority, within that word is the word author or authorship. So somebody that has authority, really somebody that authors. So it involves the idea of leadership. So for example, if you were to be reading a book, and you're kind of like, what in the world does this particular passage mean in this book? You're reading a poem, you're like, I have no idea what this means. Um, you can have a bunch of people democratically sit around and try to decide what that particular book means. Or you can actually go to the author and say, what does this mean? And the author can be like, oh, everything you guys just said is not what I mean. Let me tell you what I mean. I mean this. And he has the ability to say that he means this because he has authority because he is its author. In the same way, the idea of headship means that there is an authority there. But again, Paul's not just simply saying authority uh, drawn from a black hole or drawn from cultural preconception as to what authority is, because if we start there, then we will end with abuse. Because that's what we have. We predominantly have men within this culture and this society that are oftentimes either too heavy-handed or not... Hand, you know, heavy-handed in any way. They're, they're, they're oftentimes too light-handed. You have men that oftentimes too are overly too aggressive and try to control or coerce or abuse or manipulate, or you have men that oftentimes don't do anything at all. They don't lead. They don't, get, they don't take any authority at all or responsibility whatsoever at all to actually lead or guide. And what Paul is saying is that within this relationship structure, 
And the way that God is actually reforming and reorienting marriage, the woman submits to the man. The man is ahead. He leads. He guides. He has authority. But the authority that he uses, he uses for her flourishing. He uses to bring about her adornment, her beauty, her beautification, her protection. So in other words, think about it this way. Um, Take a recent example of the Yazidi people that were basically being chased down by ISIS. You guys followed that in the news? They were all chased up onto a mountain, and basically thousands, dozens of thousands of them were basically hunted and awaiting death as they were assuming at the hands of uh, absolutely vicious uh, people. And so what happened was another authority source came in, very powerful, very strong authority figures, call it you know, America or some form of UN council or people that have big guns that outgunned the others. So rather than the Yazidi people being absolutely frightened by those of greater authority, they actually found great comfort in their greater authority. Why? Because they were confident that they were there to protect. And when a woman can look at a husband and say he has great authority, and he uses that authority to protect, to provide, to care, to nurture, to love, that woman finds it easy to rest herself and his authority. When a woman is afraid, when a woman is not confident, when a woman has lost trust in the man's ability to use his authority in a way that brings about nurturing and caring and uh, protection, she will oftentimes have a hard time in that relationship. And you will have constant ongoing strife. And I would put the burden of responsibility upon the husband that says maybe perhaps somewhere along the lines has the man failed to use his authority in a way that brings about her good. This is what I think Paul is describing within this relationship. Headship involves completion. Headship involves authority. That comes from really this word author that's to be used in a way to protect, to nurture, to care, to love. So in conclusion, I want to finish by this thought because some of us right now may have had a lot of questions kind of you know, raised within your hearts and your minds, and uh, hopefully we'll get to those over the next week two weeks, however long we're going to be doing this. Um, but I want to finish with a thought. I want to just put a conclusion, a thought in your mind to think about something. I want you to think about Jesus. And here's what I want you to think about Jesus, because what Jesus does is he perfectly models both of these. He perfectly models servanthood, submission. He perfectly models authority. So before we finish, or as we finish, what I want you to do is I want you to just meditate upon Christ. I want you to think about Christ. And so Maybe if this involves maybe just closing your eyes. Why don't we all do that? Why don't we just close our eyes? I want you to think about Jesus. I want you to listen to what I have to tell you about Jesus. And I want to pray. I want to finish. I'm going to have Darren come on up, and we'll close in a song or two. But what I want to do, I want you to think about Jesus in these two roles. Jesus in the role of submission. Jesus submitting himself to his Father in the garden. Jesus knew what was going to come upon him. Jesus was aware of the fact that pain, destruction, hurt, going to come upon him. Jesus knew all of this he described as the cup. The cup. And yet Jesus prayed, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, there in the garden, submits to the Father. On another occasion, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. What did Jesus do that authority? Jesus used that authority to die for to hang upon the cross, to endure suffering, to take the responsibility for sinful man 
Man, you want to know how to use authority? Stop abdicating responsibility to somebody else. One of the chief excuses that men oftentimes give is they say, well, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do it. I'm not the one who's done it. But if you understand the life of Jesus, Jesus took responsibility for something that he didn't do. He bore the responsibility of somebody else's sin. And that's what brought about our healing. So men, I want you to see and think about the submission of Jesus to the Father. Think about Jesus' authority being used in a way to bring about healing and wholeness. Women, think about the same two things. I'm going to finish. I'm going to pray. And we'll sing. We'll respond to God. We have communion in the back. It's a way for us to remind ourselves how Jesus uses authority and how he uses submission for the Father to rescue us. Jesus took the bread and the cup and he broke it. Bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take this, eat. This is my bread which is broken for you. This is Jesus saying, my authority, all authority in heaven and earth, all power, all glory have been given to me. I lay that aside so that I can be crushed, bruised, and broken so that my bride, whom I love, can be made clean, whole, rescued, safe, protected. Took the cup, gave it to his disciples. This is my blood which is spilled, poured out for you so that those of you who drink of it will have your sins washed and cleansed. This is what Jesus did on our behalf. So I want to pray and let's, let's respond to God. In fact, why don't we all stand? Let's just respond to him, okay? God, thank you for great love that's been poured out for us. God, as we respond, I pray that you would uh, give us just a, a glimpse, give us a picture, give us an understanding, God, maybe a new light, a new way of understanding what the cross is all about. And we respond to you, God, in a way that brings life. So help us, we pray. So let's sing. Uh, if you're here this morning in any circumstances in your life, let's say you are, have been in relationships and it has left you broken and crushed. And maybe you're trying to navigate and work your way through some of these painful circumstances. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's the fear of getting married. Maybe it's this, it's this inordinate desire to be married. And really what you need to focus on today is Jesus. We have some people off to the side that would love to pray for you. Don't miss this opportunity. Ask other people to help you. That's what the church is here for. To help us, help one another navigate these things so that we'd be whole, so that we'd be like a city set up on a hilltop. It's like this light, this beacon, pointing ultimately to the greatness of, of our King, our Savior, Jesus. So that's what marriage can be. Some of our marriages may not be that, but marriages can be sort of this beacon that shines brightly to Jesus. Let's just sing. Let's respond. Sound good?